I Read Comics, show number In this show, we talk about comic books that are not Spider-Man. Won't that make you happy? It makes me happy. So I got four books here. Some, uh, they're mostly new. I'm looking at them again. Yeah, they're mostly new. The first one is called Fair Weather, and it's by Joe Matt. And Joe Matt has done a lot of comics. Um, he's done a lot of autobiographical stuff and some other things as well. And I've read a lot of his work. In fact, um, a lot of it had been published in Drawn and Quarterly. And this book is, in fact, published by Drawn and Quarterly. So I knew him from there. And this is another autobiographical piece that he's done. It just came out, um, even though a lot of this stuff had appeared previously. I'm looking at the copyright. It's 95, 96, 97, and 2002. So this is the first time that it's all been um, collected. And I guess, <laughs> I don't want to say I hated this, because I didn't hate it. It's an interesting concept. So he he's writing about himself as a kid of, um, gosh, I don't know, I think he's supposed to be about 10 or 11. And it's a weekend in his life as a 10 or 11-year-old kid and what happens during that weekend. And it's a typical kind of summer weekend where there's a fair that his parents are helping to put on. And he's got friends that he kind of pals around with. And there's a kid who wants to beat him up. And his life sort of revolves around his friends and his comic books because he really, really, really loves comic books. So there are several different plot lines going on during the course of this book. Um, one is the thing about the fair, which is a, a church-run thing. Um, another is his relationship with his best friend who has a bike, and he doesn't. His best friend is Dave. <clears throat> and uh, Dave is a... He's not as smart as Joe, but he has a bike, and he's a really good friend, and he knows that Joe is kind of a dipshit, but he sticks with him anyway. And he provides more or less the voice of sanity throughout this book. Um, Joe does some pretty bad things to him, but he still kind of stays friends with him in spite of it, which I thought was really interesting. Um, there's uh, the kid who's going to beat him up, and we find out why he's going to beat him up actually right towards the end of the book. And then there's not, an even other plot. Um, that revolves around the kids finding a peephole where they can look into a nudist colony and how Joe sells that information to someone else for what he thinks is a valuable comic book, but turns out not to be that way. Oh, and then there's yet another plot involving um, the hosts of uh, like a Saturday afternoon um, TV show, like a, you know, a horror show, coming to, to appear at this fair, and he really wants to see that. So, first of all, there's too many plot lines. There's an awful lot of stuff that's going on all at the same time. And while on one hand, I kind of appreciate the way he's trying to tie it all together, there are even more plot lines aside from this, which I'm not even going to get into right now. There's a thing about a cave that they find and thing about teasing a retarded girl. And it just goes on and on and on. Um, it's too much. And it feels really fragmented. Like, you don't really, you don't find the thread of the story until most of the way through. Um, Joe, as a character, is really fucking annoying, and I just wanted to slap him upside his head. 
So he's presented as having um, a nuclear family. His parents are married, and they seem like really nice people. He has a sister, and he has, I think, a little brother who's a baby. And his mom is a typical uh, for that time, and I'm guessing this is, you know, relatively my childhood, so late 60s, early 70s. His mom is kind of tired and it is just got too much stuff to do looking after all the kids. And Joe is just a total asshole to her. You know, I, I know kids can be assholes, but he is really an asshole. And I really wanted to slap him. Page after page after page. I just wanted to slap him upside the head. And the problem is that he's not a character you're interested in because you just want to slap him all the time. At the end of the book, he kind of sort of redeems himself a little bit, but not really. And by that time, you're just so frustrated with him. There have been so many points in the book where he had a chance to redeem himself, and he sort of tries to apologize for his asshole behavior, but then ends up doing it either for a selfish reason or lying about it, or just going back on his apology that you just kind of know by the end of it, he hasn't... It doesn't feel like he's learned anything. I don't trust him to have learned something or to have discovered that he shouldn't treat his best friend so badly or he shouldn't rip people off for comic books and stuff. It just, it doesn't stick. It doesn't seem like it's going to stick. So I just felt like (coughs) his parents should beat him up. (laughs) Here's a sample of this, okay? Just so you can see. Um, so Joe's over at his friend Dave's house and they're watching TV and his mom calls. It's Saturday morning and um, this is his side of the conversation. No, mom, I can't. It's Saturday. Dr. Shock's on. No, forget it. Wrestling's on after that. Just mow it yourself. You, well, that's not my fault. Yeah, but they pay me for mowing their lawn. You, what? A buck? Mom, I get seven bucks a lawn. Why should I? What? Food? What food? That doesn't count. You have to feed me. It's the law. No, duh, Mom. Yeah, well, you should have thought of that before you had any children. Yeah, right. Well, then ask Monica to do it. No, how should I know where she is? She, I, well, just let it grow. Who cares? Look, Mom, I gotta go. Just mow it yourself. It's good exercise. Okay, bye. And that's the way he talks to his mother. (laughs) We didn't do that in my house, and my parents didn't beat us up. I just cannot believe that his parents let him get away with talking to them like that and not doing his chores and all the other shit he pulls throughout this. So as it goes on, you find out he has, you know, problems. He's a bedwetter for one thing. He collects comic books and at one point his mother um, threatens him with getting rid of his comic books and it turns out she really doesn't. She just hides them. But even the threat of getting rid of his comic books doesn't help. Like nothing seems to make him better. And then as I'm reading it, I'm like... Does he have ADD or something? Like, is he schizophrenic? Does he need to go see a psychiatrist and get medication? He's just so fucking annoying through the book. So for that reason, I was unable to really um, like this book very much. I was a lot more interested in his friend Dave. Um, because Dave's a kid who sticks with him. He says of himself that he's not very smart, and that's one of the reasons he hangs around with Joe is because Joe is smarter than him and can figure stuff out. But Dave gets along with the rest of the kids in the neighborhood who seem to respect him. Um, He defends himself against bullies and even defends Joe when he doesn't even need to and seems to have a kind of fun but chaotic home life. They go to Dave's house um, where they're having a pool party on a hot night and you know, his his whole family is kind of running around, and there's lots of other kids running around, too. And it, it seems, you know, pretty friendly and open. So, uh, personally, I would have liked to read a lot more about Dave and a lot less about Joe. So, the the style is 
in, if you've ever seen Joe Matt's work, you know what it looks like. It's it's cartoony, um, but not to bad effect. It's pretty simply drawn. His use of it's black and white, by the way, um, and his use of the black in this is pretty good. Um, I really like the way it's framed, and he draws kids pretty realistically. Um, you can tell them apart, which is really good. Um, he has a good eye for detail in as far as like the houses and people's glasses and <clears throat> the the details of the fair and different um, bikes and, and motorcycles and buildings and stuff like that. So it's really nice to look at. And, you know, it's really just too bad that when Joe Matt was 10, he was an asshole. I'm kind of guessing he's not an asshole anymore. And that would be a good thing. But um, I really can't recommend this because it was just too fucking annoying. Let me go on to something that wasn't fucking annoying. And this is the um, trade paperback of the Homeless Channel. Now, I talked about the Homeless Channel before, back when it was coming out in um, minis, and Matt Salady was very kind to give them to me, and he gave me this book too, and he even inscribed it to me. I want to read the little note that he enclosed in this, because I thought it was funny. He says, I know you're not a big romantic comedy fan. Hopefully there's enough of a twist here to keep your interest. (laughs) So... Um, this is why he says it. If you remember my earlier review, I'll, if you don't, I'll just recap it for you. So the um, plot of this story is um, set in the here and the now, and it's about a woman who decides that she's going to start her own TV channel that's about homeless people. Um, and this is an idea that I'm sure has been tossed around by um, people who are interested in starting new channels all the time. And maybe it's even been tried by now. I don't know. But her idea is just that you send people out with camera crews and you film homeless people and you use whatever money that you make to actually help these homeless people. Um, And she makes a point of employing them at the TV station as much as she can. So even though it's exploitation... It's exploitation with a good result. And for her, Darcy, the ends justify the means. So that basically is the plot. And the book is about how that happens, how she manages it, um, and whether or not the channel is going to succeed. There are two really interesting subplots to it. One is about her love life, hence the note from Matt to me. Um, There's a guy named Grady who is sent by um, the people who are sponsoring the channel, which has the great name of Infinicor, um, which is very much a mystery science theater type of name, you know, like Cunhugeco, which I've seen actually in other places. Um, And he's just supposed to keep an eye on her, and they end up having a relationship. And the relationship they have is really realistic and... It's funny that Matt says, you know, a fan of romantic comedies, because it's not a romantic comedy. There are funny things in it, but to me, it seemed just like a slice of life. And I really appreciated that, that they have some ups and downs and some funny stuff happens. But it's not a romantic comedy, because the point of this book is not whether Darcy and Grady are going to end up together. Um, It's a plot line, but it isn't the plot line. And the way that they come together and go apart is not so unbelievable that you sit there and go, God, somebody wrote a script to make this kind of stuff happen. It's not like that at all. It's much more like what actually happens in real life. So I really liked their relationship, and I thought it was good. And it resolved itself in a very nice, non-Hollywood way, which was awesome. The other plot line that happens, which is, I would say, more significant, really, for Darcy, is that she has a sister who's homeless, 
And um, I'll give a little spoiler here. About two-thirds of the way through the book, she finds out that her sister is dead because she was living on the street and she froze to death. And this affects her pretty deeply. And when her sister dies, she has to really consider whether or not she's doing the right thing by having a channel that exploits homeless people and whether she's using the money in the right way. So it's a real uh, crisis point for her, and I think she deals with it like a real, actual, normal person would. And there's a couple of vignettes about her and her sister which are really, really good. Again, very much like real life and very touching, too. So I I give this a very, very strong recommendation. Um, I think I, I mentioned before that what Matt does in his style is to use photo reference, and it's not that he's rotoscoping them, essentially, but he's um, using them as a reference, and they look very much like, um, you know, real people and with everything drawn in it. Um, and I think I had complained a little bit last time that I was having a hard time telling some of the characters apart, and because this was done over a fairly long period of time, you can really see how his art improved. And by the time we get to the last section of this, you can really tell the characters apart. Their faces are very distinct. You know who they are and <clears throat> by the way that they dress and their hair and everything. They're much more sharply drawn, and I mean that in a literal sense. Um, so it's uh, got some really great art and a really good storyline that's very realistic and I think it's this is going to happen you know there is going to be a homeless channel one day and I really hope that the people who start the homeless channel use the money to help homeless people and don't just take it and put it in their pockets so um, support independent comics by this um, Matt is doing a whole bunch of stuff online I'm going to put up a link to his website where he talks about the many ongoing art projects that he has but he's a really talented guy and I can't wait to see what he does next Now, this next one is going to be a really half-assed review, and the reason is that, um, uncharacteristically, I didn't finish reading this book. And Tony, I'm really, really sorry. <laughs> you were nice enough to send me this book, but I just didn't like it. <sighs> and I thought it was just too stupid to finish. So let me tell you about it, and um, I'm prepared to receive email from people who say, no, this is a really good book. So, hey, if you can convince me that this is a good book, more power to you. Um, it's called Black Harvest. It's by Josh Howard, um, published by Devil's Due Publishing. Um, 
And this came out uh, pretty recently, so it collected a bunch of comics that he put out. Uh, hold on a second. First printing, 2006. And uh, read the summary that's in Amazon. Um, book description. In the small town of Jericho, Texas, a yearly phenomenon known as the Jericho Lights bring tourists and UFO enthusiasts from miles around. Although the true cause of the mysterious lights remains a mystery, they've become a deeply rooted part of Jericho's history. The return of 19-year-old Zaya Vaughn, who mysteriously vanished nearly three years ago, throws the small rural town into chaos when it becomes clear she is not the girl she once was, with the word repent cryptically etched into her skin. Caught in the middle is the internet blogger Daniel Webster, <laughs> get it, who has traveled to Jericho to uncover the truth about the lights, but the real story he uncovers is bigger than he ever imagined. So that's the setup. Um... <laughs> Yeah, that pretty much says it all. Um, I'll, I'll give a little bit away by saying that it's involved with aliens and stuff, and people turn into flaming skull heads and, and things like that. But just to give you a, reason, a flavor for why I didn't really like this very much, uh, I was kind of just browsing around the internet trying to find some other reviews to see if I could find some people who did like it, who could maybe convince me of some of the virtues. And here are two reviews I found of the actual comic books rather than this trade. So here's, this is from archives at zinester.com. I don't know who wrote this. There's no attribution, but this is a review. Josh Howard's art is wonderful. He can draw a girl that is so cute looking. Whether Zaya is nude on the floor or dressed in a skin-tight black outfit, she is gorgeous. Uh, here's another review, probably by the same guy of the next issue, Black Harvest Number 5. No Lee is a cute girl, and she is certainly drawn that way. Her miniskirt does really add to her sexy look. Zaya is, as well, is drawn cute, but with a mysterious look about her. She's not fully in control of herself. Zaya's situation is certainly unique, and you're never quite sure what she will do next. The coloring uses a lot of subdued colors, mainly blacks, grays, and white when Zaya is around. It looks amazing. This comic is full of mystery and excitement, but what stands out most is Josh Howard's drawing of the female form. They alone are, getting this, are worth getting this comic to see. So right there, that should tell you why I don't really like it very much. Um... This main character, this girl named Zaya, is, in fact, that's a very accurate description. Mostly, she's either naked, or wearing very little clothing, or taking off her clothing, or um, wearing clothing that is revealing in ways that real clothing couldn't actually be. Like, I'm just looking at a page right here, and she's wearing um, a tank top, and then she's wearing a mini skirt that's, I think, got about three inches of fabric in it. So if she was a real person and she was wearing it, not only would you see her crotch the whole time, whether or not she's wearing underwear, I can't tell you, but it's riding so low on her hips that she couldn't actually walk. She would have to be hoisting it up all the time like those guys who wear the pants that are, you know, down around the, the back of their butts. Um, and, of course, her tits are shown in just about every shot that there could possibly be. Um, she does wear these skin-tight outfits quite a lot of the time. She also has, like, blood-red lipstick. And um, this thing keeps happening where blood comes out of the corners of her eyes. Oh, here's one where she um, is experiencing some kind of psychic thing, and she tears her leather outfit. And she tears it so artfully that even though on a real person it would fall off and actually fall to the ground, it manages to stay on her body while revealing, you know, a whole arm, most of the tops of her tits, but it doesn't actually fall off her tits. I don't know how it's staying on there. And then it's ripped all the way around her waist and kind of shows the, um, 
the part of your abdomen, you know, where the crease is from your thigh, but it doesn't actually show like pubic hair or anything in there. There's a lot of that in this book. There's also a lot of nipples um, for no apparent reason. A lot of gratuitous nipples, a lot of, of gratuitous girl poses with butt stuck way up in the air. And there's some gratuitous um, sort of fake lesbian stuff. And um, also a lot of... Uh, having words carved into girls' arms for no particular reason. Um, other than, I guess, that's sexy to some guys. Is it sexy to see a girl with tattoos who has um, bloody words carved into their bodies, into their arms, and, and their, their groin area? I don't know. That doesn't seem very sexy to me, but I guess it turns on some guys. So, um, it's pretty exploitive of, of young women, given that she's only supposed to be like about 19 years old. And we actually see some of her when she was even younger, when she was 16. Um, and you know, I, I guess I just don't get this whole, you know, if, if you're going to have a heroine, a young heroine, let's make her all gothy because gothy is really sexy. If she's got black hair and, um, lots and lots of black eyeliner, <clears throat> excuse me, and blood red lips and wears a lot of skin-tight, dark, dark clothing that's kind of falling off her body. And um, turns out to be, you know, possessed by the devil or aliens or something like that. So she is literally a femme fatale. And, uh, you know, I guess that's just really sexy to some guys. Um, it was kind of hard for me to tell what happened to her here at the end. Although I think she sacrificed herself in order to um, save the world, but then it turns out that somebody else gets possessed, another, you know, 19-year-old chippy with her tits kind of falling out, um, and the blood coming out of her eye. I don't know, it just doesn't, just doesn't appeal to me. And the plot, this whole thing about the lights and the aliens and repent and flaming skulls and a nuclear explosion. It was so complicated. I just couldn't understand it. It was layer on layer. It was like the guy who wrote this kind of went through it and he just kept piling stuff on top of it without having a very clear idea of where it was going to end up. And it took way too long. <laughs> I mean, even with all that stupid, confusing plot, it still took way too long. So, um, that's my crappy review because I really didn't like it. So, like I said, if anybody really did like it, you could tell me about it. I guess the coloring really is kind of neat. And, you know, the art, aside from the, the girls, is kind of Bruce Timish. It's sort of Bruce Tim manga-ish. It's very sharp. So I, I like that. If it didn't have, you know, half-naked teenage girls on every page, I would probably have liked it a lot more. Um, I just wanted to say one quick word about the Jericho Lights. The guy who wrote this book, Josh Howard, apparently, well, I didn't read this, but I'm just inferring this, based this on an actual phenomenon that takes place in Texas called the Marfa Lights. And um, these are these mysterious lights that sort of show up on the horizon and seem to do all kinds of weird things. And um, they've been going on for a long time, not as long as people say they've been going on. And um, if you Google it, you'll see all kinds of theories as to what this could be, including aliens and all kinds of totally whacked out theories. Um, it turns out that they're car headlights. <laughs> People, so scientists went out there and they did some experiments. So there's a highway that is outside of this town and um, people did experiments to match up the frequency of the car headlights and the volume of traffic with the lights that they were seeing. And it, it turns out that 
um, well, I'll read this to you from a site that, from the Wikipedia entry here. Um, the Marfa lights are created by car headlights reflecting off white soils that occur along the slopes of the um, Chinati Mountains. This is the only possible explanation that incorporates the absence of visual or spectral data from an overflying aircraft while at the same time observed on the ground. So there's just the soil there has this reflective quality to it, and it's the car headlights that bounce around it. So there's really nothing mysterious about it at all. No aliens, no teenage girls with bloody carvings, no nuclear explosions, no vampires, none of that stuff. Car headlights. So my last book is I wanted to end on a positive note, and this is um, new. This is Jeff Smith's Shazam! The Monster Society of Evil. And this was a, a copy that was um, given to the Lincoln Heights Literary Society. And Logan actually went and wrote a review of it for Lee Haley. So, and he didn't like it very much. And so I said, well, lend it to me. I want to see if I like it. So I think I like it more than he did. And I got to say, I am not familiar with Shazam as a comic book. Like, I know who he is. I know who he's supposed to be. I know where his powers came from. But I never read any Shazam comics. Somehow, I just passed them by. They weren't ever comics that, you know, my brother read, so I didn't get them in the collection. And it wasn't something that I ever sought out. Most of my Shazam knowledge, in fact, comes from Alex Ross in Kingdom Come. And a little bit of research I did when I was reading that. So... This was interesting because I got to read more about him and his origin through the view, the viewfinder, no, the prism of Jeff Smith. And I also have to say, I don't know a whole lot about Jeff Smith. Like, I know about Bone, even though I've never read it. So I know that he is a guy who has been doing stuff on his own, and this is one of his forays into mainstream comics. So he essentially um, retold the origin story for Captain Marvel from a more modern point of view. So it's the story of how he got his powers. Um, Mary Marvel, his sister, is introduced as well and how she got her powers. And then it's the story of him defeating the Monster Society of Evil, which was a real storyline that ran in Captain Marvel for um, quite a long time in the 40s. So he's now condensed it. It was in four issues and it's collected in this very nice um, hardcover published by DC. So um, I, I thought it was good, although it's the story is really different. It's not at all what I'm used to from modern comic books. It's not even Silver Age. It doesn't have that like totally whacked out, um, impossible things happening that Silver Age comics have. It's it's before that, you know. It's Golden Age comics, and there's a certain hokiness to the plot which you just have to go with. Um, it's funny, I, I was reading Logan's review, and um, he is talking about how he felt it was um, kind of confusing. Um, he says, this book left me more confused than engaged. Um, and he just didn't really get into the magic element of the story. So, for those of you who don't know the origin of Captain Marvel... Um, Billy Batson, a kid, an ordinary kid who in this book happens to be homeless, um, just gets picked out of nowhere by a wizard who gives him this power. And um, when he says the word Shazam, he turns into Captain Marvel, who is like Superman. Um, in this book, the idea is that Captain Marvel is an entity that's been around for a really long time and gets kind of 
put into the bodies of various people over the course of history, and Billy Batson is the latest one who gets this this superhero. And they're both they're different people with different personalities. So when Billy turns into Captain Marvel, he's not still Billy, although Marvel has Billy's memories and Billy has Marvel's memories of what's just happened. So uh, that's kind of interesting. And then the whole thing about Mary Marvel getting her powers is just that she sort of gets a, an excess of, of Billy's and turns into a little superhero, which I don't know how relevant that is to the actual story of Mary Marvel. It's just the way it is in this book. So um, we find out their powers. They have a really cool friend named um, Talkie Tawny, who's a tiger, a real tiger, who takes human form sometimes. And then um, through a series of very complicated things, including Billy... um, going to the top of the Rock of Eternity and fucking things up, um, monsters end up coming to Earth, um, and people get, not people, aliens, aliens? I don't even know if they're aliens. Creatures, like talking alligators, happen. And then all of the insects in New York um, go into these robots because they're going to take over the world and get their revenge on people who are always trying to kill them. And the monsters, who are very creepy-looking monsters, by the way, um, are going to take over. And um, it turns out in the end that it's Dr. Savannah, who's a bad guy, who's in charge of all this. And in this book, he happens to be a snake. Um, I looked it up, and he used to be a worm. But in this book, he's a snake, and he doesn't have glasses. So all kinds of wacky stuff happens. And I was thinking about it a bit. I think when you have magic, you open the door to an awful lot of stuff. Um, that could happen for no particular reason. And unless you put very firm boundaries around your magic, anything could happen. Um, I was reading something about, um, you know, when Tolkien was coming up with the concept of the wizards for Lord of the Rings, he had very specific boundaries on what they could and could not do. Like, they can't fly, you know, and they don't have super strength, although they have more than ordinary strength. uh, And they can't just do all kinds of magical things anytime they want to. There are boundaries on their power. The problem here, I think, is we're not quite sure what the boundaries are on um, the power of the wizard who gives Billy the power to turn into Captain Marvel, you know? Um, It seems like they can go back through time and they can um, fix things that are wrong in the world. And even though the wizard gets smashed by a huge stone, he comes back to life. So is there an afterlife or... You know, like, what's up with that? Um, If they have all this power, how come the wizard can't just make things right on the earth when these giant robot aliens come? And where did Dr. Savannah come from anyway? There's a lot of stuff that's just unexplained. And I don't know if any of this was really explained in the original Captain Marvel books. Uh, Maybe it wasn't. And maybe you just had to take it on faith that this was all going to get explained at some point. So that's the confusing part for me, is that they're just there are no parameters for this and you just have this feeling like anything can happen. Oh, talking animals, uh, talking roaches even. And then there's a part where the roaches decide that because Billy stopped them from getting squished at one point, the ants do too, that they're going to help him. But then it turns out that they don't really help him. And, um, they decide that they're going to take over the world, but then they don't. And then they all go back to their homes, I guess. It's just, really weird. Um, I will say, in case you were wondering, Captain Marvel does save stuff in the end. The world doesn't get destroyed. The robots don't take over. But we know that Dr. Savannah and the Monster Society of Evil is probably going to come back and he's going to have to face them again one day. 
Um, there is a lot of really fun stuff in it, though. So aside from the confusing plot, it's very well written. It's really well paced. The art is just beautiful. You know, it's this really nice combination of nods to the Golden Age artists and Jeff Smith's own more modern style. And I think he did a great, great job of combining the classic look of Captain Marvel with a more modern take on it. The kids really look like kids. Although I have to say, Mary Marvel is supposed to be five to six years old. She doesn't talk like a five to six year old. She talks like a ten year old. Um, I think this is often a problem with kids in comic books is that they talk like adults think five year olds talk. And if you've ever talked with a five year old, they don't talk like Mary Marvel. <laughs> Um, the animals are great. Taki Tawny is, is awesome. I really love him. I have a soft spot for tigers, uh, ever since Jungle Book, because uh, George Sanders. And there's just a whole lot of really cool stuff. The coloring is also just beautiful. Um, it was colored by Steve Hamaker, and it, it's really, really gorgeous. And this is a nice addition in this hardcover. Um, there's some sketches in the back and some notes on how things got to be developed. Um, the minor characters are kind of interesting as well. It's supposed to take place in the modern world, so um, there's television and, and planes and all kinds of stuff like that. It's not supposed to take place in the Golden Age. So uh, I would definitely recommend this. And if you're a fan of Captain Marvel, I would absolutely recommend this because I think it's a very cool way to retell that story with a more modern spin on it. So um, that, that was a good read. I really enjoyed that. So those are my four books for this time around. Um, next time, I believe it's going to be a um, movie fest with our good friend David Arroyo from the Comic Makers Podcast. So uh, we will be talking about uh, the Fantastic Four movie, and I think we're also going to be talking about another really wacky movie called Women Who Love Comic Books, which is sort of me. But you know what? I wasn't in that movie. What the fuck? So until next time, uh, keep reading those comic books. Keep not buying Spider-Man. And we'll have it. more. Of course, it's uh, Conan the Barbarian. Uh... <laughs> Kisses you like the warm embraces. Love little children in love and bright sunny faces. Corner like the clear sky with the moon up above. But mostly Conan, you just wanted to be loved. But old Conan was a barbarian. Barbarians, yes, he's. Only find love in the dreams, yeah. Only find love in the dreams, yeah. Corn and kill women, and corn and kill men, and corn and kill the demons now and again. Corn and kill most anything when push came to shove. But mostly Conan, he just wanted to be loved. But old Conan was a barbarian. Barbarian, just he only find love in the dream. Yeah. Only find love in the dreams. Yeah. One day old Conan decided enough was enough He got tired of killing and maiming And that's when they off the 
Was not the adventure that he had tied up Mostly Conan just wanted to be loved But old Conan was a barbarian uh, uh, uh. Barbarian seems only find love in the dreams, yeah Only find love in the dreams, yeah In the dream, only find love in the dreams. Yeah, yeah. So tell me, could this be love? Then be love, yeah. Tell me, could this be love?